0: You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, co founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. Since we launched this ministry in 2016, we've led dozens of classes for churches, conferences, schools, and ministry groups around the country. But the only way to attend one has been to either live in D.C., where we're based, or attend a church or a conference that's invited us in to speak. Next week, that's going to change. We're going to open up registration for our first ever open enrollment class. We're really excited about it, and I'll tell you more about it next week. But this week, I'd like to share an excerpt from a four-week class we taught for a church in D.C. about a year ago. Each session of this class was about two hours long and included a lot of breakout group discussion, but we're just going to share about 10 minutes of teaching from the start of week three. Then I'm going to give you all a heads up about an event happening later this week. And this week, we're going to dig into why some people are liberal and some people are conservative, in the church. We're going to look at why we think people might disagree with us. We're going to look at healthy reasons we actually disagree. We're going to look at why that kind of healthy disagreement is good. And then we're going to look at some unhealthy reasons, some spiritually unhealthy reasons we disagree in the church. So let's just jump right into the reasons we probably instinctively think people disagree with us. And the first thing we might jump to is that they're wrong, or If they're not wrong, they're at least stupid. And honestly, even if this is the case, which more often than not, this is not the case, but even if it is, it's not good for our own hearts to jump right to that conclusion, to jump right to assuming that anyone who shares our faith but not our partisan disposition is wrong or stupid. James tells us that we should not be praising God with our mouth and then insulting people or cursing people who are made in the image of that God with that same mouth. So jumping straight to I'm coming here to worship, but I'm also going to mutter in my heart that half the people worshiping with me are stupid is probably not healthy discipleship, not healthy Christian practice for us. And only slightly less unhealthy is to believe that people who share our faith, but not our politics don't actually share our faith or to think that their political disposition is an indication that they're not as mature in the faith as we are. They're not as Christian as we are. Uh, And I'll be honest, this one is super tempting to me. It is the one that I, in my heart, if I'm not cautioning myself, am quickest to fall back on and lean into. And the reason is um, during our homework in between classes, we read that extended quote from Leslie Newbegin, talking about how the vision of the holy city that is set before us cautions us against declaring holy war against our political opponents. But if we can convince ourselves that our political opponents in the church aren't actually Christians, that they're just saying they are, and they're either intentionally or unintentionally here to tear the church down from the inside, then we get to declare holy war against them and not question ourselves about it. We get to indulge that impulse toward animosity. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, though. Pay no attention to the fact that suddenly, somehow, in this case, defending the church looks a heck of a lot like partisan bitterness. We can kind of blind ourselves to what's actually happening in our hearts if we put a veneer of protecting the witness of the church over it. So this is another one that we have to not be quick to jump to because if we jump to this one, we're gonna find ourselves giving ourselves permission to do things that are gonna malform us and do things that are actually going to disrupt not just the health of our own hearts, but the health of our church community as well. So the other big problem with this, besides the fact that acting in line with the idea that our political opponents in the church aren't actually members of the church, uh, we also have the problem that, can we even use someone's partisan leanings as a proxy for the legitimacy of their faith? How do we really know if someone's faith is genuine? And it turns out the Bible says in the book of Romans, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have genuine faith. And we can hear what people confess, but we have a hard enough time knowing what's in our own hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things. There's a reason the psalmist had to pray to God, search my heart, know me, and show me what's in my own heart, and lead me away from the things that are wrong in there. Because you can't often understand the dynamics going on inside yourself. And you have a behind the scenes pass to what's going on in your own heart. And you still can't always know it perfectly well. So figuring out what's going on in someone else's heart, it has to be a lot harder. The lucky thing is the Bible does give us a litmus test. It does give us a way to know if someone's faith is genuine or not, but it's not a rapid test. It's a test that takes a long time to administer and a long time to see the results of. The Bible tells us that to get to know whether the Holy Spirit is growing in someone, whether their faith is genuine, we have to observe them and relate to them over time and see whether they are growing in love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These nine qualities the book of Galatians calls the fruit of the spirit. In the Greek, that's fruit, singular, not fruits, plural. If you're missing some of them, then you're not actually getting any of them from the Holy Spirit. Uh, The way to know if someone's faith is genuine is if over time they are on an upward trajectory in all nine of these qualities, in all nine of these arenas. That's one of the litmus tests the Bible gives us. And that's kind of the type of litmus test the Bible gives us for judging someone's faith. You will know a tree by their fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is these nine things. And you can't tell if someone is, what direction someone is trending in, in these nine qualities based on a one-time snapshot of where they are at when it comes to their partisan disposition or when it comes to their beliefs about the structure of government and public policy. You can't tell from one moment in time what their overall trend line is going to be. So if we can't jump to the conclusion that people in the church disagree with us because they're stupid, and if we can't jump to the conclusion that people in the church disagree with us because they shouldn't really be in the church, then how are we supposed to understand why people in the church disagree with us and today like i said we're going to look at a few healthy reasons we can disagree about government and partisanship in the church and then we're going to look at why those reasons are good and then we're going to look at unhealthy reasons spiritually unhealthy reasons so let's start by looking at not all of the good reasons to disagree but a few of them and the first Might be that these people share the same principles as us, but are pursuing them through a different strategy. And my go-to example for this, because it's one I grew up with, is abortion. We all know plenty of people in the church whose approach to abortion is a legislative one, and particularly one of legislative prohibition. Their approach to this topic is to try to do everything they can to get this particular action prohibited by law. Now I grew up in a very heavily Catholic or Catholicized area. Uh, My hometown was a Catholic town in a very liberal state. And the first two classmates I had carry a pregnancy to term were in seventh grade. I had a lot more classmates have babies in high school and none of them ended up needing to drop out of school to have their kid one of our prom queens my senior year was pregnant. I honestly don't know what our abortion rate was, but I do know that we had a preschool and kindergarten in our high school building, and we had night classes for students who whose children were too young for preschool. And I'm fairly certain that uh, our abortion rates were also lower than they would have been without those systems in place. So that's an example of People having a shared principle of God knits life together in your mother's womb and that life is worth protecting and having different strategies for approaching it. Next, some people have different passions than you. Um, whenever I worked for churches, I was always on a little crusade to scrub out any Christianese language. I was really, really passionate about the notion that people should not have to learn a different dialect or learn about a different subculture before they can actually understand what's happening in a church service, before they can understand what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. So I was always on the hunt for phrases like like a quiet time or do life together, things that you never really hear people say outside of church circles. But some people just have hearts for different issues than you have. Um, If someone at our church spends their time volunteering at N Street Village, which is a shelter for women escaping abusive situations, we might talk about how they really have a heart for the vulnerable or the heart for people who are hurting. And if someone spends their time tutoring at Little Lights, we might say that they really have a heart for early childhood education. But then when it comes to government, when it comes to policy, when it comes to voting and partisanship, we often expect those people to put the heart God gave them and the heart that we praise in them aside and subject their heart to our heart. If someone's heart for something else shows up in the way we vote, we suddenly get very uncomfortable with that. When we should not, that's actually something we have to overcome. Next, experiences. Two people can have a heart for the same issue and the same strategy for approaching it and still end up, because of the experiences they have working on it, with different ideas about what the most effective or important things to do for that issue are. All right. That was an excerpt from a class on why Christians disagree about politics, when that disagreement is healthy, and when that disagreement is unhealthy. The actual session included a lot of small group conversation and a lot of practical application as well. And if this sounds like something you'd be interested in, then you should visit our website, christiancivics.org, and sign up for our newsletter. As soon as we release details on our next class and open registration for it, you'll get to be the first to know. Now, if you're in the D.C. area, our friends at the Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission are hosting a roundtable discussion this Friday evening on when, how, and why Christians should seek a third way through polarized divisions. I'll be part of that panel discussion and... Registration to attend is open to anyone who wants to attend. So we'll have a link to that on our website in the show notes for this episode. That's it for this week. Thank you all for being with us, and we'll be back next week with more on how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square.